this yes. is hell. I see. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Returning to our show today, our guest is award-winning writer, author, columnist, filmmaker, and activist George Monbiot, who posted the article, The Cruel Fantasies of Well-Fed People, the astonishing story of how a movement's quest for rural simplicity drifted into a formula for mass death, which you can find at his website. That's M-O-N-B-I-O-T dot com, com. Sure, it's nice to think that all we have to do is go back to the land and we can save the world from not only climate change, but everything else. However, the reality is that's simply not possible if we plan on continuing to feed a growing population that is miraculously experiencing less hunger despite that growth. George is a regular columnist at The Guardian. He is the author of several books, including his most recent book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, which was pub- uh, published short, oh, sorry, which was shortlisted for the Wainwright Prize and was named a New Statesman and Spectator Book of the Year. It was also a book that was on our shortlist to have featured on last year's show, but unfortunately at the time that it was published, I was fighting for my life in the hospital. Uh, The essay that we will be discussing today is a kind of rebuttal to some criticism of Regenesis, if you will. Prior to Regenesis, George wrote Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis, which we discussed with him on the show back in 2017. And that interview is available for free online at our website, thisishell.com. Again, all you have to do is just search on his last name, Manbiot. His other books include... uh, How Did We Get Into This Mess? Heat, How to Stop the Planet from Burning. The Age of Consent, A Manifesto for a New World Order. Captive State, The Corporate Takeover of Britain. And Feral, Rewilding the Land, Sea, and Human Life, and others. He also released a concept album, Breaking the Spell of Loneliness, which he co-wrote the lyrics with Scottish singer-songwriter Ewan McClellan and was the winner of the 2016 Fatea Award for Innovation in Music. His films include How Whales Change Climate and There Is More Than One Kind of Intelligence. He's the subject of a BAFTA award-winning documentary, uh, or, or of a film of, he's sorry, he's the subject of a documentary by BAFTA award-winning filmmaker Alex Lockwood. It's a short called Manbiot, Arresting the Truth, which follows George as he sets out deliberately, deliberately to get arrested to draw attention to governmental inaction over climate change. As The Guardian reported, George was one of seven prominent supporters of Extinction Rebellion, which succeeded in bringing judicial review proceedings against the Metropolitan Police after the force issued the order under Section 14 of the Public Order Act to demand that the group's activists, quote, cease their protests within London. That order attempting to ban Extinction Rebellion rebellion protests in London was determined to be unlawful and abuse of power by police. He's also the founder of The Land is Ours, a peaceful campaign for the right of access to the countryside and its resources in the United Kingdom, which you can find at tilo.org.uk. He's also a founder of Rewilding Britain, whose website is rewildingbritain.org.com, or .uk, rewildingbritain.org.uk. George was presented with the United Nations Global 500 Award for Outstanding Environmental Achievement by Nelson Mandela. And you can follow George on Twitter, at George Mambiot, on Instagram, at his name again. And you can see his films on YouTube, at 
George Monbiot, journalist. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, anything new in your world? Yes, I work as a, a high school tutor, and uh, this is uh, the big uh, November 1st is the big day for early admissions uh, to colleges uh, submissions. So every all the 18-year-olds, and their, especially their parents, are going crazy right now. So it's fun time at work. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Do you teach to the test? Uh, yeah, uh, we do. You know, SATs, ACTs. That you know, that's the way to do it. You know, it's. it's you know, they say it's a uh, knowledge. You know, uh, innate intelligence test. Originally, they said that. Now, everybody knows that, it's not. There's a like you know, history of eugenics with SATs and anti-Semitism, and you know, it carries on, <laughs> unfortunately. So, is it just me, or does every podcast that actually has guests only have other podcasters as guests? I'm a member of several podcast groups on social media. Whenever someone posts their podcast, the theme seems to be some sort of debate, and the people debating are the host and another podcaster. It's as if the entire podcasting world is doing nothing but reproducing itself. You know, the media industry, to which podcasting is supposed to be an alternative, it's as if podcasters are reproducing the exact same corporate media business model that podcasting was supposed to free us from and circumvent. Podcasting, as well as community radio, is supposed to offer something you cannot get from mainstream establishment media. Yet all it seems to have done is create its own echo chamber of podcasters talking to each other instead of giving access to the voices, views, and perspectives that are shunned by that establishment media. And are now apparently being shunned by podcasters who see themselves as the greatest thing since, well, sliced cheese. And sliced cheese is god-awful. Almost as awful as a new media that has turned itself into the same kind of navel-gazing self-importance factory emulating the establishment corporate media. Coming up, George Monbiot on the problem with all of us abandoning cities and going back to the land in response to climate change. We will also have this week in Rotten History. Dan will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell that were posted at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole. Dan, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? We've got a good one here, uh, or a bad one, or a hellish horrible. one. Yes, that's right. Uh, why are you joining Truth Social? And also coming up, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. And man, is this tease brutal. And I apologize for making you read it. Dan, what is Jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth? Jeff will be playing the Jew card today. <laughs> and we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is hell going back to the land. I mean, it sounds idyllic, raising your own food, tending to your own garden, living your own life within nature. Who wouldn't want to do that? Sounds great. The problem is, well, logistics, if you will. That kind of adaptable world is not what has been created, what we live within, one where huge groups of people can simply pull up their roots and replant them in empty lands waiting to be farmed. Here to help us have a better understanding of how our current food system works in reality instead of a rather very tempting fantasy award-winning writer, author, columnist, filmmaker, and activist George Mundiot posted the article The Cruel Fantasies of Well-Fed People, which you can find at his website, mundiot.com. Welcome back to This Is Hell, George. 
Hey, Chuck, it's great to connect again. It's Thank gr- you. great to have you on the show. The uh, interview that we did on uh, uh, after, the, uh, <laughs> I'm forgetting the name of the book, uh, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis was absolutely spectacular. I really wanted to have you on the show when your latest book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, came out. But unfortunately, I was hospitalized at that time. So let's get yeah, are, to- are you doing okay now? I'm all right. I'm doing better. It's a long and lingering thing. When you're in the hospital for 15 days after several surgeries, it can be pretty brutal, but I'm, I'm yeah. still recovering. Yeah. So yeah. you write that tour, I thought, found this fascinating. Tourism sells you, uh, sells to you the story of what it has taken away. It markets the traditional and unchanging, and in doing so, changes it. As the old joke goes, come to this beautiful, unspoiled land or island and spoil it. The clock starts ticking from the moment the first person says timeless. Then everything that is celebrated starts to become the shadow of itself. Similarly, food and farming industries now intimately connected in some places with tourism, which I see every year when I go on vacation, are caught in the endless tension between their reality and their representation. The money generated by the myth of timelessness draws local people away from the sparse living the labels revere. Whether it's tourism or food, how much is our understanding of a place or even what we eat not based on historic reality as much as it is based on marketing to sell us a reason to visit a place or to buy a food? Is that the misunderstanding our fault? So this, I think, is really fundamental that we get sucked into the representation of things and lose sight of the reality of things. And this was a prediction that the French philosopher Guy Debord made with extraordinary prescience, I think, in 1968 in his book, Society of the Spectacle, um, where he talked about the spectacle, the representation of things, taking over from the things themselves and becoming a more powerful force than the reality that it claims to represent. And I think we see this now in sector after sector. I think his 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 predictions have really mapped out with a, a terrifying and astonishing precision. Um, but we particularly see it in issues like food and farming. Now, you would have thought food and farming are about as real and grounded as you can possibly imagine. I mean, a lot of people talk about these as authentic sectors. But what we see in these sectors, as indeed in all others, but perhaps with greater intensity in food and farming, is representation taking over. You know, and uh, for instance, as as the food system becomes more globalized, as as products which were originally local, like French cheeses, for example, are marketed everywhere from Dubai to Shanghai, the marketing of them becomes ever more local and specific and and bucolic with these close-ups of dirt-grained hands and um, cows munching in alpine meadows and girls in Heidi costumes wandering about in those meadows. And, and of course, the further it gets away from that image, the more intense the imagery becomes. So so the marketing is going in exactly the opposite direction to the reality. And and what we see is is that the the farmers who have had to upscale often, you know, with in in ways which are damaging to both planet and to the animals, um uh, are are represented as a very opposite of what they have become. So in France, for instance, um, you know, to stick with the French theme, because it, it's really stark there, I find, 
um, you, you can travel across the entire length of the country and not see a dairy cow. You can move through the most famous cheese producing regions and there is no dairy cow in sight anywhere because the cows are now in cow factories, these massive great steel sheds, and they're being fed with maize, with corn, as, as, you, as you say in the US, um, which is being grown everywhere. Everywhere you look, it's corn, 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 um, and, and no dairy cows anywhere. And the milk is being trucked hundreds of miles. And so the, the local cheese you might be producing, which is very famous for its terroir, for the region where it's being grown um, and has protected status, could be being made with milk taken from somewhere else entirely. It could even come from a different country. And, and so what you see here is this, the spectacle heading in one direction and the reality heading in a different direction. And we all want to believe in the spectacle. We have an urgent desire to believe in the spectacle. And so we blind ourselves to what is really going on. So are we in a state of denial about what farms produce and how it's produced? Or are we overwhelmed by the propaganda of false representation? Or does that propaganda lead to a denialism? Yes to all three of those questions, very much so. And I think you, with all three of those, you, you put your, your finger on it. I mean, denial is scarcely stronger in any other sector than in food and farming. We really do not want to know where our food comes from. So to give a classic example of this, right, in the United States, 95% of people eat meat, right? But in a survey, 47% of people said they wanted to ban slaughterhouses. So, so people are eating meat without any idea or thought about where it comes from. You know, they don't want to know that it's coming from a slaughterhouse and that before that it was coming from some massive, brutal factory in which the animals are all packed together, or for that matter, some massive sprawling ranch land in which huge amounts of wildlife and, and carbon-rich environments have been displaced in order to create more and more and more cattle pasture, which is also a massive threat to the living world. We just don't want to know where our food is coming from. We want to believe in the bucolic images. And when you look at the marketing, you know, you look at the packet, it bears no relationship at all to, to where this comes from. So if we look at eggs, for instance, very often, um, all over the world, it's, it's a similar thing. You'll find on on the egg box or on the um, uh, on on the advertising around it pictures of chickens clucking around in um, butterfly-filled meadows uh, with total freedom and this sort of sense that they're sort of part of the living world. Whereas the reality is, your eggs have come from a massive factory where your chickens are in cages. Um, and even if they're so-called free-range chickens, they're still in that massive factory with a little dirty yard, which they might go in and out of occasionally. Um, but it's as far as possible from the imagery with which those eggs are being sold to you. Tourism often whitewashes an area's uglier history. Does local authentic food alter a past that the public would rather not acknowledge? Yeah. So. Um, I, I, I don't know quite how it is in the United States, but here in Europe, there's this really powerful drive to be eating peasant food, and people will pay a fortune for what they fondly imagine are peasant diets. Um, but you know what we what we portray as peasant diets are really nothing of, of the kind. Um, 
people people um, who, who lived as peasants, who grew their own food in Europe, they had a far sparser diet than the ones we now celebrate. There was almost no meat. It was a luxury eaten only occasionally. Cheese was eaten much less often than you'd imagine. In many places, people didn't eat salads at all. Um, diets were often very poor. They were inadequate. They were deficient in certain nutrients, especially protein, which is why the peasant ancestors that we so often celebrate were tiny by comparison to us. I mean, you know, six inches shorter on average. That that sort of that sort of scale of change has taken place. And then we, you know, talk about the traditional Italian cuisine, which is so based upon tomatoes. Well, tomatoes didn't really find their way into Italian cuisine until the mid nineteenth century. It, 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 they just weren't a major part of it at all because, of course, they'd come from the New World and it took a long time to penetrate. Similarly with peppers in Spain. And, and you know, the, the protein we celebrate, you know, is all about meat, it's all about cheese, but actually most of what many peasant societies across Europe ate was beans and lentils. Um, we, we call it dal now. We use the Indian name, but um, in England, for instance, we called it things like peas pottage and peas pudding and mushy peas and pea soup. And you know these dishes just are not celebrated and they're not eaten by gastronomes today. And so we, we have a completely distorted image of what people were eating, of how rich and healthy those diets were, uh, which was not very much on the whole and of why we are in the situation we're in today. You know, because we think that we're still eating the same diets that our ancestors were, we don't realize that there's been a massive global transformation of the human diet. And it hasn't all been good by any means. There's been a whole lot of problems with it. But what is remarkable about this is there is much, much more food per person. And 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 it's it's an amazing thing that this is one of the least celebrated aspects of of our society. You know, there's so much that's wrong, but this is something which has so far, and there are signs that it's not going to last, but so far has gone very right. That there is, despite the fact that we've got a lot more people, there's a lot less hunger and starvation than there was, for instance, when I was born. So I was born 60 years ago, 1963. There were 3.2 billion people on Earth in, in the year of my birth. And there were widespread predictions of catastrophe, not, not just because I was born that year, um, but because people were saying the human population is going massively to outstrip the amount of food available. And so there's going to be mass famine. But today, in a world of 8.1 billion people, there's a lot less hunger and famine than there was in 1963 when there were 3.2 billion of us. On this idea of authenticity, first, I want to just want to touch on this really quickly because mm. we had a guest on recently who was discussing how Indian cuisine is often labeled. I can see it on the street in front of uh, the uh, my studio right here, uh, Devon Avenue here in Chicago, a very heavily Desi neighborhood. Uh, they it will say uh, authentic vegetarian Indian food. And the mm. guest said, you know, Indian food is not 
vegetarian, authentic vegetarianism. That's something that the rich have. That's not something that everybody has in India. The, the majority of people in India actually do eat meat. So this seems to be in the very opposite direction of what you're saying. Why are the wealthy attracted to eating like peasants when you see within Indian cuisine, the wealthy are trying to impose their eating styles upon everyone? Why are the wealthy attracted to eating like peasants? Yeah, I, I think we've sort of almost sort of come out of the other side of the the period of hunger that that our ancestors experienced, and so it's now well, you know, we 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 don't need to establish ourselves by eating meat. I mean, I'm yeah, you know, I'm guessing here because it is a trend, it is a real thing. I mean, not that much of a thing, you know. There's still the great majority of people in the Western world eat meat, and on average, we eat a lot more meat than um, people in poorer nations. So for instance, in the US, it's an average of 118 kilograms per person per year of of meat. In the UK, it's 82 kilograms, and the global average is, is 43 kilograms, and it's considerably lower than that in India. So, you know, the meat eating is still heavily concentrated in rich nations, but there is a sort of counter movement of veganism and vegetarianism, and I support that. I think that's a good thing. Um, but you know, let's not pretend, let's not backcast that onto other cultures and say, this is what everyone wants, this is what people are, 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 are aspiring to. Because there's this very powerful force, one of the most powerful forces in human culture, which is called Bennett's Law. And Bennett's Law says that as people become more prosperous, they seek a more energy-dense diet, particularly a diet rich in fat and protein. And, and that's what's driving the massive expansion of animal farming worldwide. And it's a really rapid and potentially extremely dangerous expansion. So, for example, at the moment, um, if you take the weight of mammals on Earth, only 4% of those mammals, everything from shrews to elephants, is, is wild. 4% of the weight of mammals on Earth consists of wild species. 36% consists of human beings, and 60% consists of livestock, cattle, pigs, chickens, and the rest. Um, and that growth is is getting uh, really just going through the ceiling at the moment. I mean, people talk about the population crisis, uh, and of course what they, they mean by that is a human population. Actually, human population has grown massively over the past few decades, but it's now slowing right down. It's fallen to below 1% a year, and it's it's heading towards a plateau around mid-century, and after that, it'll start to decline. It's about the only in environmental indicator which is doing that. But there is a real population crisis, and that's a livestock population, because while the human population growth is below 1%, livestock population growth is at 2.4% a year. That means a doubling every 30 years. You, as you were just pointing out, we benefit above all from a different legacy, the marvel of the past 50 years of falling hunger during a time of rising population, a marvel we in the rich world scarcely acknowledge, so comfortable has it made us. So you mentioned the high environmental costs and the degradation of soil that has happened during that same time as well. Is this unsustainable process the only way hunger can fall while populations rise? Is the remarkable phenomenon unsustainable and does your book read genesis uh, feeding the world without devouring the planet does that offer an alternative 
Yeah, so it, it is definitely unsustainable. I mean, it is it is an extraordinary thing, and we should all pause and think and thank our lucky stars that this transition has happened, that we are not faced with a world of widespread famine, which almost all prior generations were. So, for instance, if you look at the death rate in famines, which is a really powerful indicator, um, in uh, a century ago, it was 82 per 100,000 people. 82 people um, uh, per year out of every 100,000 died in famines. And then it sort of fluctuated a bit in the middle of the 20th century. Um, and But by, by the 1970s, it had come down from 82 to 8.4 per 100,000. Today, it's 0 0.5 per 100,000. And there's no point, no known point in recorded history when it has ever been lower. It's an extraordinary thing. But there are real big problems with, with this, you know, and problems which we shouldn't deny either. Um, and um, those problems include, first of all, the great environmental cost of this. I mean, the, the, that that miracle has been delivered partly through much higher crop yields and better transport around the world. So if there's a local shortfall, it can be made up by bringing food in from elsewhere. Um, but those yields, the way we've been producing those yields has been very, very damaging. Um, it's come about through hungry and thirsty crop varieties, which need loads of fertilizer, loads of irrigation, often lots of pesticides and herbicides to um, wipe out the pests and the competing um, plants. Um, and it's in many cases accelerated the degradation of soils. It's also caused major social impacts um, we've seen a lot of land grabbing, a lot of enclosures. We've seen the rise of corporate power. And it looks as if it might be potentially running out of road because since 2015, we've begun to see a turning of the trend. There was a pretty steady decline in global hunger from the 1960s until 2014. And then in 2015, we saw it start to tick up again. And in the last three years, four years now, it's it's been rising very fast. Um, just from 2019 to 2022, it's risen from uh, the, the number of people who are chronically malnourished rose from 613 million to 735 million. And that's partly because of you know, identifiable issues like the COVID pandemic, like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But there's also some deeper stuff going on and one of them is like the soil um has been so badly de depleted and degraded in many places that that productivity in those places is falling we're running out of water in a lot of places we're seeing climate shocks hammering food production in some parts of the world and we see problems with the global food system in itself which are quite similar to the problems faced by the global financial system in the approach to 2008 so so yeah there's there's strong signs that this might be running out of road and so what do we draw from this well first of all it's absolutely essential that we maintain high food production because if we don't we will go back to a time of famine and with a much bigger population size now 
that means that billions would starve. It's a really genuinely terrifying prospect. If we can't sustain production levels, we're going to head into an era of unprecedented hunger. But we have to do it differently. We can't carry on hammering the soil, hammering our water supplies, slapping agrochemicals everywhere in order to maintain those high yields. We, we have to find other ways of maintaining high yields. And there are now other ways becoming available. And, and that's what I investigate in Regenesis. So uh, we're speaking with George Mamiot. He is the uh, columnist at The Guardian, and his most recent book is titled Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. So is, is globalization, as it is practiced today, proving to be unsustainable, especially in light of the fact that there are wars going on, and as far as we know in human history, wars have always happened. Is globalization simply incompatible with a world that seemingly is always at war? Well, you could conceive of a really good, benign globalization where we sort of get past our restriction within national borders and past this point of thinking only in nationalistic terms and I'm this sort of person, so I'm at war with that sort of person. You know, you could have a, a peaceable globalization where we have a, a much more democratic global settlement and we don't um, um, uh, just attach our loyalties to the place where we happen to live and the borders within which we happen to live. Um, and, you know, that's what I tried to explore in my book, The Age of Consent. Like, how could we have a democratized global system, a, a global system which works for everyone? But unfortunately, that's a very long way from the form of globalization we, we do have. Um, we have the extreme domination of certain nations globally, but also of certain um, um, uh, multinational organizations, but be they corporations or offshore oligarchs, for that matter, who are always offshore wherever they happen to be, you know, because they live in multiple homes and you never really know where they live. Um, or, uh, for that matter, the big multilateral organizations like the IMF, the World Bank, the United Nations Security Council, which really operate in quite dictatorial ways. They're controlled by a few very powerful nations, and they dictate to everyone else. And so globalization could be a force for good. You know, I don't want to dismiss the concept of it, but the practice of it, the reality of it, um, is falls a long, long way short of that ideal. Now, when it comes to food production, we we do need global movement of food. And I mean, it has got ridiculous in some places. You know, you've got this absurd situation in, in Europe where you'll have a truck of strawberries going from north to south and it'll be passed by a truck with exactly the same strawberries going from south to north. And it's just like this sort of permanent circulation of, of food where it's just replaced from one place to another. I mean, it's, it's preposterous. But there are some beneficial aspects of the long-distance transport of food, is, uh, and one of those is that um, they smooth out the dangers of harvest failure, of, of, of local crop failure, which was one of the major reasons for famine in the past. Is if, if you were totally reliant on the produce of the area in which you lived, and there was a weather shock, um, which meant that you had a really bad harvest in that place, you would starve. But if you can bring in food from elsewhere, well, then you've got a better chance of, of survival as long as you can afford that food. Um, and 
Um, and that's one of the reasons why people are better nourished today, you know, alongside massively um, increased crop yields and productivity. Um, but um, there is also um, the, the thought that as the food system becomes more globalized and becomes more concentrated in the hands of just a few corporations, and to give you an idea of this, four corporations control 90% of the global grain trade, then the whole system becomes more fragile. And this is exactly what happened with the banks in the approach to 2008. We saw this extreme concentration of corporate power. We saw a loss of diversity. We saw a loss of spare capacity within the financial system. You know, everyone was pursuing efficiency to the max, and that made perfect sense for your individual corporate policy, but actually weakened the system as a whole. We saw a, a loss of circuit breakers, which were the sort of regulations which stop contagious shocks from happening. We saw a, a loss of uh, what systems theorists call modularity, which is the compartmentalization of the system, which again will stop shocks from propagating ac across that system. Loss of backup systems, different ways of doing it. And frighteningly, we're seeing something very similar happening in the food system. And that's a really terrifying prospect, the prospect that the system itself could collapse, regardless of all the other forces bearing upon it, that perhaps the, the greatest danger to the global food system is now the global food system. And, and, and if the banks had collapsed in 2008, it would have been pretty darn scary for, for very large numbers of people. It would have caused enormous disruption and, and chaos around the world. Mm -hmm. But if the food system collapses, boy, I mean, that doesn't even bear thinking about. You, you can't imagine how horrendous that future would be. But there's been a series of scientific papers now going back 10 years or so saying the food system is looking very much like the financial system in the approach to 2008. The same problems are afflicting it. It might collapse and no one seems interested. There's no pickup of that at all in the media among politicians there's just no talk about this and yet this is this is a massive existential risk you mentioned a new book by chris smage a small farmer and writer with an academic background called saying no to a farm free future you write how chris states that you uh, want a dis uh, depopulated countryside and unpeopled nature to eliminate ruralism to keep as many people as possible out of garden sized or small farm sized patches in the countryside and to concentrate people on the cities as helpless consumers you write that i want none of those things in fact i strongly oppose them all i will state my position once more but with no confidence that here others will hear it. I do not want to see any depopulation of the countryside. So I, I know this is difficult to do, but what explains this misunderstanding of your position uh, in Regenesis? What is it that you argue that they interpret in a way that you say is inaccurate? What explains that yeah. misinterpretation? Sure. Th thank you for asking that, because I get this a lot. I mean, people make all these wild accusations about what I want, um, which bear no relationship at all to anything I've stated or, or anything I want. Um, and a huge part of the issue, I think, is that I'm, what I do in Regenesis is to put numbers on the problem, is to say, right, let's let's look at the numbers. Let's, let's look at yields. Let's look at inputs. Let's look at outputs. Let's look at emissions. Let's look at 
fertilizer use let's look at deaths from hunger let's let's look at all of these crucial crucial issues and put the numbers on it and that as i've found since the book was published is about as welcome in this arena as a tambourine in a bark sonata yeah <laughs> because it's it's all about aesthetics you know the way people feel food should be produced is entirely qualitative it's about pictures it's about poetry it's about gut feeling which is understandable you know totally understandable that people should have visceral feelings about food after all that's where the food goes but it's literally lethal when it comes to ensuring that everyone has it and you know, I, I see there's been two completely different questions you know the question one is what production systems do certain well-nourished food writers in the rich world want to see? And question two is how might everyone on earth be fed? But these are completely different questions and they lead to completely different conclusions, but they're being endlessly confused with each other. You know, the, the, the production systems that well-nourished food writers in the rich world want to see are recapitulations of of well what they imagine the peasant system to be which is actually very far from what the peasant system was it's an, and it's a, an aesthetic reverie it's it's a dream of a, a an idealized peasantized um food system which really bears no relationship to any food system there's ever been on earth and then they say well this is what i like so this is what should be used worldwide to to, to feed the planet and you say Okay, so where are the numbers? You know, where, where where are your production numbers which show we could actually do this? And the very act of saying we need to see the numbers makes you an enemy of this movement, which is all about the pictures. And 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 that's I think you know in a way my major finding, having published the book, that what's really, really objectionable to people is the quantification. N never mind what you're trying to do with it. Never mind where you're trying to go with it. If you're, if you're doing the numbers, you are, are somehow become an enemy to, 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 to humanity. And it seems totally perverse to me, but unfortunately, that's the theme which has come up again and again and again. You write that Chris Mage says people should spread themselves out in the landscape and make low-energy livelihoods there. Does this movement want us all to participate in some sort of pioneer settler colonialism mm. reenactment? Is this a libertarian mm. individualist way of approaching the challenges that we face? I mean, I, there's certainly some overlap, I think, with the prepper mentality, with the idea of, you know, we can all go it alone. We can all um, so solve our own problems regardless of what happens to the world. And, and sometimes it seems in, in that movement that there's almost a sort of yearning for collapse. You want it to happen so that you can prove yourself as one of the tough pioneer types who can produce their own food. Um, but there are a number of well, slight problems with this model. And one of them is that most of the landscapes in which we might want to spread ourselves out into simply, even with maximum production, cannot pr provide us all with food. Um, that most of the places in which we live don't have a big enough agricultural hinterland to support them. There was a paper published in Nature Food which said, you know, what's the minimum distance over which the world's people could be fed? And they found that only a quarter of the world's people could be fed within 100 kilometers of where they live. 
because there's just not enough good agricultural land and water and the other things required to grow the crops um, um, within that distance. And the average minimum distance over which people can be fed with grain crops is 2,200 kilometers. So, you know, the idea, it's a lovely idea, you know, if, if you don't, if you ignore the numbers, if you, in fact, if you deliberately refute the numbers, it sounds great. We can just spread out into the landscape and do our own thing. Somehow getting uh, getting the land, I don't know quite how we do that, and it's never quite specified. Um, you know, I think there's a sort of uh, idealistic belief that somehow people will give us the land, um, whereas as we know from land disputes all over the world, that's not quite how it tends to pan out but we can spread out into the land and grow our own food well you know if you're living in a city of a million people um and you spread out into that land you'll find you simply can't grow enough food for those people even if you're hitting the absolute maximum yields which have ever been hit and there's one of many uncomfortable realities uh, of which we're in total denial is that a great deal of us not so much in the united states or or in the united kingdom where i live but very large numbers of people around the world are highly reliant on imports from other places. And that people tend to live in dense communities, not just cities, but in valley bottoms where there's um, a lot of people living in dispersed towns and villages, for instance, um, where there's not enough land to produce um, food for everyone. And they bring in food from where it's being produced in um, places which are lightly habited and vast. So for instance, like the US plains or like the Canadian prairies or like the Russian steppes or the Ukrainian Chernozem. And there are problems with this model. Absolutely, of course there are, you know, and, and that introduces vulnerabilities. But take that away and billions would instantly starve. And that's the thing that really freaks me out about this uh, whole writing is that there's this sense that uh, we, uh, prior to industrial agriculture, if you will, uh, we were all subsistence farmers and that we were all living off some small piece of land. But if you look at the history of the indigenous here in the United States, North America, wherever you look, you see that they were a nomadic people who went from area to area in order to feed themselves. So. Do we have this belief that historically we are all subsistence farmers, and is that an accurate belief? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. This and there's this wonderful book by David Graeber and David Wengro um, called "The Dawn of Everything," um, looking at the deep history of humankind, and what it shows is that there were thousands of different strategies. There were loads of different ways of living. And what we tend to do in thinking about the past is to compress everything, is to say, oh, people live like this. They, they were like that. They, they had one mode of living, and this is what it was like. And they had one mode of political organization, and they had one mode of relationship to the land. It's just not true. You know, we, we, we are a phenomenally diverse species, and we've done things in wildly different ways, and we can do things in wildly different ways again. You know, we, we have lots and lots of options, but very often there's a drive to shut down those options to say, you know, you're, no, no, you can't possibly do it any other way. The way we do things today is the only way they could possibly be done. And I think the the, the aim of all people who, who want a better world should be to say, 
there are lots of different ways of getting that better world. The possibilities stretch out in front of us. And anyone who tries to shut those possibilities down and say, um, uh, you know, it has to be like it is now, or even worse, it has to be like it was in the past in our a completely narrow and blinkered and and idealized and compressed version of how people lived in the past, they aren't helping. You know, we have to be open-minded about this. We have to cast our net wide if if we're going to get through the many existential crises we now face. George, do you have time for two more questions? Sure. Uh, you write, if you believe that enough food could be grown to feed everyone, you are also guilty of productivism, consumerism, even colonialism. Mm. Can we have a food system that does feed the world without it reproducing productivism, consumerism, and colonialism? Mm. What does Regenesis, does your book Regenesis, offer an alternative to feeding the world without productivism, consumerism, and colonialism? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and you know, all those are, are real things and and real dangers, but they're completely different from simply wanting there to be enough food for everyone. <laughs> you know, this this idea that if you worry about how everyone's going to have enough food if we grow a lot less food than we do today you are a productivist a consumerist and a colonialist it's just bizarre and slightly frightening to be honest it's like so where does this come from where does this mindset come from and i think it comes from this real fear of the numbers real fear of getting to grips with these realities which we have become so adept at denying. You know, if you scratch someone's denial, you tend to get a very bad reaction. So, yeah, we we, we have to do these things in, in ways which are not only going to be environmentally much less damaging than they are today, but also are going to be far more equitable. And, and we the, the, the danger we face is escalating corporate concentration. Um, and And part of that is political choices that we and governments who claim to represent us have made uh, for instance dismantling un- antitrust laws you know, this it's something which has happened slowly and subtly and we have hardly even noticed but because the antitrust laws are much much weaker than they used to be um, we have seen corporations growing much bigger and more powerful um, and that's that's a real danger it's a big political danger but it's also a danger for systemic stability. When you've got, as I say, a few corporations wielding all the power, then that system becomes more fragile and it's more likely to collapse. And you know, governments at great expense to the public bailed out the banks at the last minute in 2008 and prevented a total collapse. But they did so by uh, issuing future money a process they called quantitative easing, which was basically conjuring money out of thin air. Well, you're not going to bail out the food system by producing future food. You can't magic that problem out of existence. So, so there's, you know, we we need a much more democratic and equitable system. But at the same time, you know, we can't afford the indulgence of just saying, well, let's just stop producing so much food. Um, uh, if we do that. You know the, the the consequences are unimaginable. So, so what I'm looking at, and I can't claim to have solved all the problems, you know, because we need loads and loads of minds on this, and there are some very good ones already, but we need a load more. Um, is to look at a whole load of new forms of of production which could potentially meet those criteria of high yields, 
low environmental impacts and being more equitable and socially sustainable as well as being environmentally sustainable but it, it's not easy you know there's, there's no silver bullet solutions there's no magic wand that you can wave where you can say there we are problem fixed no drawbacks no downsides it's all fine I mean, everything i'm proposing has downsides because frankly everything has downsides there are no perfect solutions in an imperfect world and it's a real shame that things like Wall Street, the Dow Jones, they all benefit from this concentration of wealth and this monopolization. Mm -hmm. And so according to the more establishment media, therefore, anything that would hurt the uh, Wall Street or the Dow Jones or the NASDAQ or whatever mm -hmm. is something that is anathema to the success of humanity. Uh, we have been yeah. speaking with George Mambiat, the author of several books, including his most recent, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. You can find out more about George. George on Twitter at George Monbiot, on Instagram at George Monbiot as well. You can see his films on YouTube, George Monbiot Journalist, and you can check out his website at monbiot.com. One last question for you, George, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise it is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, <laughs> you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I think that's the category this is going to fall in. You write mm. when some writers and campaigners uh, prioritizing their own mysteries and passions appear to treat billions of people as disposable. It should tell us something important. We need to check ourselves. We need to ask what impulses we are following, whether we are really seeking the best outcomes for humanity and the living planet or simply avoiding cognitive pain. We need as much as we are able to set our passions aside. What is the cognitive pain we are avoiding? Is it that we cannot get away from it all? Mm. I think we, we're avoiding the dissonance of realizing that you know the solutions to any of the existential crises we face are are never going to fit snugly into our worldview. You know, they'll always be disconcerting. We'll, we'll be assailed by cognitive dissonance because there aren't any comfort zones left. So. You know, when it comes to feeding the world, for instance, we're in this very tight space. You know, eight billion people need to be fed. One day it'll be nine or ten, um, but they need to be fed in, in an Earth system which is already in major trouble. Partly because of the way we feed ourselves. You know, food production is as is a very major cause of environmental dysfunction, and and is driving us towards collapse. And so, the solutions we come up with are going to have to cut across some of our ideologies. They're going to have to cut across um, all, all the different forms of, of change. You know, they're going to have to be social, political, economic, organizational, technological. And if we say, no, the only solutions we'll accept are those which fit perfectly with my worldview, are those which speak to my own particular mysteries and passions, then frankly, we are part of the problem. We are not part of the solution we 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 have to be open-minded and open-hearted because if we're not then we are helping to drive people into a very bad place I certainly hope that we can become open-minded and open-hearted and prove to everybody that this is not hell, but unfortunately, that's the state that we're in right now. George, I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. It's always oh, an honor you, and a, a privilege. And uh, again, you should, everybody should check out your book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, and follow George at his website, monbiot.com. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Chuck. Total pleasure. All right. Take care. And you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. 
This is Hell, the only podcast not solely focused on reproducing podcasting. Believe it or not, we actually interview people who are not podcasters. That's why for podcasters as well, this is Hell. If you learned something from George Monbiot about how our food system really works and why we cannot simply turn back the clock and live an ideal life within nature, Support completely. Listeners supported This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber on Patreon. As a subscriber, you get access to our weekly bonus podcast exclusively for Patreon patrons, which goes live this week on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. By becoming a Patreon member, not only do you get the bonus weekly podcast with a new monologue for me each and every week and a classic uh interview unavailable anywhere else online you also get a special secret code word that gives you a five dollar discount on all this is hell merch you can also get first crack at every week's question from hell as it is first announced on patreon and our newest feature every week whoever is producing chooses a question from hell for me your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show host chuck mertz submitted by our patreon subscribers a question that i have not seen nor heard until our producer asks it on the Patreon podcast. I really do hate that segment. I know I shouldn't, but I really do, because it makes me realize that when I ask a guest a question from hell, it's a far more difficult thing to do to answer it than I thought. That's all on This Is Hell on Patreon, and only at Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We got an email from Chris, who often joins us during This Is Hell office hours, which happen every Wednesday evening, including this Wednesday evening, at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, which, Carrie's Lounge, which is in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood at 2251 West Devon Avenue. Chris writes, Hey Chuck, want to stir up a total S storm? Why don't you book Norman Finkelstein? Now, apologies to everybody who's listening to the live stream or the podcast, but we are also a radio show on five different radio stations, so we have to censor ourselves on stupid profanities. But for those of you who may not know, Norman Finkelstein is a political scientist who is also an activist and specializes in studies of Palestine and the Holocaust. Norman has been on the show twice in the past, the first time absolutely amazing interview. The interview went so well, he had a student transcribe the entire thing and he posted it at his own website. Second interview? Not so much. In fact, it was as if he had forgotten we had ever spoken before and he grew increasingly angry throughout the conversation. So why would having Norman back on the show cause a storm, as Chris says? Well, according to the Anti-Defamation League on his substack, academic and activist Norman Finkelstein wrote, that Hamas's actions, quote, warms every fiber of my soul, and he compared it to the attacks on the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Here's what he said. If we honor the Jews who revolted in the Warsaw Ghetto, then moral consistency commands that we honor the heroic resistance in Gaza. I, for one, will never begrudge. On the contrary, it warms every fiber of my soul. The scenes of Gaza's smiling children as their arrogant Jewish supremacist oppressors have finally been humbled. So, despite ADL saying the Hamas action warms Norman's soul, his writing states it's the smiling faces of kids in Gaza that warmed his soul. But and this might just be me. I have not seen any of these images of smiling children in Gaza. If you have, please send them to me because 
I really could use some pictures of smiling kids in Gaza. But Chris, you are correct. If Norman was back on the stone, uh, show, he would probably cause some sort of storm. Also, he would probably forget that he'd ever been on the show before and get increasingly angry. We also got an email from former producer Daphne. Uh, Daphne writes, Hey, I'm in an email list uh, called Museum of Care that Nika Dubrovsky leads. And a Lorenzo Velotti wrote to promote his essay, which sounds awesome. Would you be interested in interviewing him about the caring classes? I love the idea of mentality uh, or a mentally restructuring society under that term. I'm sure he would send you the full essay. Daphne then sends a link to an article titled The Caring Classes, a Sociodemographic and Occupational Analysis of Caring Values by Lorenzo Velotti. Uh, and Luca Michel Senior. The abstract states, in the past, the working class was perceived as a cohesive social and political subject, although this was never fully the case, and it is certainly less the case today. Class, in fact, is not just defined by economic attributes, but also by social, cultural, and ethical ones. Care, understood either as work or values, is fundamental for better understanding class. The implications of the relationship between care values and class are yet not fully understood. In his article, Building on David Graeber's Intuition Regarding the Caring Classes, we theorize and statistically explore the existence of a working class care ethos by examining which socio-demographic and occupational groups share care values. Using European social survey data and ordinal logistical regressions, we test to what extent self-perceptions of care for others are associated with occupational working profiles and socio-demographic characteristics. We find that caring for others is a value shared transversally by an intersection of different individuals who experience a few conditions of subalternity in the context of patriarchal and racial capitalism, a left-wing political orientation and a background of political union organizing, some specific occupational profiles marked by interpersonal interaction, and most significantly, by explicit forms of care work. We conclude by speculating that the concept of caring classes can be a useful one toward a fertile terrain of political struggle, which all sounds fascinating. Plus, there's the connection with the past guest, the late, great David Graeber, and that's the third time he's been mentioned today, so if you're playing the David Graeber drinking game, you're probably not sober anymore. David was on the show a couple of times, and those interviews can be found at thisishell.com when you search on David's last name, Graeber. We are in contact with Luca, thanks to Daphne and Lorenzo as well, and we look forward to both of them being on an upcoming show. If you have a guest or topic suggestion or just want to share something with the class, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. You can message us via FBook. Post a suggestion at our FBook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole. You can leave your suggestion on our Patreon page if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can tweet at us via X at thisishellradio, or you can share your idea within our Discord community. And if you do any of that, we will likely read whatever it is you have to say on air. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far at our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. This week's question from, from Hell is, why are you joining Truth Social? 
And uh, welcome to the Hellhole listeners, which I was right at the right page, and then I started scrolling up other <laughs> beautiful texts you. on uh, <laughs> welcome to the Hellhole, but we'll get there. Uh, Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And remember, if you are a Patreon subscriber, you get all that stuff for $5 off with a special secret code word that you get once you become a Patreon subscriber. Wojtek R says intense self-loathing. <laughs> That's why he's going to Truth Social. Yes. I like that. That's good. Uh, Ronaldo Lotti. I've never pronounced his name out loud, but since he's a contributor, I'll, I'll say the whole thing. Uh, truth Social is neither truthful nor socialist. <laughs> I'll go to the ice cream social instead. <laughs> What does he live in the 1890s? Right, uh, we had ice cream socials growing up in Did the you? 80s, and yeah, in uh, Chicago suburbs. No, I hated them, but I held <laughs> but hated uh, all school-related <laughs> events. So yeah. I'm a good judge. Uh, Jen D says, "To tell you the truth, I'm not that social anymore." <laughs> that rings true <laughs> for me too. Uh, Aaron D. For a little antisocial untruth, Colby S. If you have to ask, you don't really know what's going on, do you? That's <laughs> ridiculous. David R. Because I'm a nihilist. That's, <laughs> That's perfect good. reason. Sure. Uh, Marco G. I'm joining for entertaining purposes. Sure. I tried that on Twitter with right wings, like you know people but i end up just getting angrier than entertained unfortunately yeah it's too bad uh tom g i for one welcome our one unwoke mindless anti-virus overlord <laughs> so again the person with our favorite answer to this week's question question from hell gets their choice of this is hell swag you can see all of our stuff by going to this cell.com and clicking on support you can still leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can tweet it at us at this is hell radio you can post it in on uh patreon if you're a patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell or uh in our uh, discord community or you can email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner coming up we have jeff dorchin and the moment of truth we'll also have this week in rotten history we'll tell you who our next guest will be here on this is hell we will be discussing a breaking news story that has been embargoed until tomorrow and you if you appreciate all of that this is hell has to offer and that it's definitely not the media we will tell you how you can piss off the media that hates us then we really need your help in doing that you are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is Hell. Dan, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. One more time. Zizek's speech in Frankfurt to the anti-Semites. 
Not meaning in any way to step on the toes of my learned colleague, Sebastian P. Whipper, who I'm certain will do a much more able job than I could ever do to elucidate the history behind the current war action in Gaza. But I felt, as the official Jewish big mouth of This Is Hell, the need to comment. Ten days ago, Slavo Zizek gave a brief speech to the Frankfurt Book Fair. Actually, um, listener Tom Gross posted it to the... Uh, this is our Welcome to the Hellhole group. Part of it was to condemn the postponement of awarding a prize to Palestinian author Adanya Shibli. But the main thrust of his thesis was that the prevailing discourse on the Israeli-Gaza war prohibited examining and publicly discussing the background of the current events, which include on the unprecedentedly cruel rampage by Hamas. Any complex analysis of the history behind the struggle was being stigmatized by rhetorical tactics. These rhetorical tactics were meant to keep the focus of public discourse on how singularly horrific the acts of Hamas are, which he did not dispute, as opposed to anything in the surrounding history of the conflict. There are similarly restrictive rhetorical tactics at work from the side of those marching for free Palestine. That is, of course, to be expected whenever you have an enormous crowd demonstrating for the same cause. I don't think it's easy even for Jews who sympathize but don't want Israel eradicated, and that's because any expression that you support the existence of a free and democratic pluralistic state that is somehow nevertheless Jewish in character is inherently complex, far too complex to be expressed in a crowd of thousands of people chanting that Palestine must be free. I definitely feel that whatever from the river to the sea means to this or that marcher or this or that Palestinian, to many Jews right now, it is interpreted as a wish for ethnic cleansing of the Jews from the land in question, from the River Jordan to the Red Sea, from the Negev to the Golan, I can't say for sure that's the proper interpretation of the phrase. It has been used as a rallying cry by Hamas, but it's also been used by other Palestinian organizations prior to the advent of Hamas, organizations who held it to mean something more like the complex idea of a free state not limiting itself to according special citizenship rights only to Jews. The tactics coming from the pro-Israeli side meant to tacitly or overtly quash complex discussion, however, are several and include the following. Describing the brutality suffered by the victims of the Hamas October 7th attack massacre and mass kidnapping meant to justify any acts of retaliation taken by the Israeli state in response, regardless of legality, brutality, arbitrariness, or limitlessness. Two, describing the brutality suffered by those among the victims of the attack, massacre, and kidnapping on October 7th, who also routinely performed acts of compassion toward Palestinians. The point here is to discredit the idea of working for peace as naive, foolish, and perhaps having given the Israeli victims of Hamas a false sense of security. Three, describing anyone involved in peace demonstrations as instant historians, a tactic meant to belittle the knowledge of the conflict while at the same time, four, 
disparaging any show of knowledge of the history of the conflict as relativizing or misunderstanding the singular quality of the Hamas attack, an attack so uniquely evil that all of the Israeli government's 70-some years of historical actions against Palestinians aren't even worth considering. I have to agree with Zizek that there's not much subtlety involved in the current public discourse, and I agree with him that no past actions on either side justify the insane violence of the Hamas attack. I also agree that the attack didn't happen in a moral, political, or historical vacuum, and that grappling with the history of Israel and the Palestinians is appropriate when discussing the Hamas attack and the tactics used by Israel in striking back. Going back to the tactics meant to quash attempts at understanding the history behind the conflict out of which the current spasm of war arose, groupthink is always suspect, and if I ever find myself chanting something in a march of hundreds of people, I am instantly critical of what we are chanting and begin to examine it. The pro-Palestine marches are no different, but groupthink that leads to egregiously sweeping military actions are no less suspect or in need of examination. As for the fact that Hamas killed Jews whose lives' goals were peace, no one on either side working for peace in Israel or its occupied land is ignorant of the fact that their own blood could be shed by the violent actions of militants on either side. Even some of those family members surviving the victims of October 7th have expressed distress at the indiscriminating scope of their government's retaliation. People don't stop working for peace because horrible violence happens. People who actively work for peace, not simply someone like me who sometimes chatters about it on the wavelengths, aren't doing it to protect themselves, as if helping a civilian Palestinian woman to get health care in Israel would in any way protect that Israeli from being killed by Hamas, any more than a Palestinian in the West Bank joining with a Jewish settler to host cross-cultural children's playtimes or art classes expects never to lose their home or family members to a pack of right-wing settlers aided by the IDF. Of the ones I've met, People who work for peace, whether in the region or outside of it, do so in spite of the actions of militaries and paramilitaries, no matter how terroristic those actions might be. Those actions are, in fact, why people work for peace. And anyone who isn't a weekend pro-peace dilettante understands that violence can happen to them or their loved ones, and such violence will not change their convictions if their vic convictions are strong and well-informed. Now, as for accusations of anti-Semitism, my understanding reaches farther than that Professor Whooper intimated in the first half of his Past Inside the Present on Monday. I understand the impulse to rebut the accusation, whether one is Jewish or not. However, personally, I'm convinced that everyone is anti-Semitic because, as I once mentioned in my play, The Life and Times of Jewboy Cain, even the word Jew itself has an anti-Semitic ring to it. I don't say this because anti-Semitism is so deeply rooted in our global culture, although it is. I say it because anything you say about any subject whatsoever is bound to rub some Jew somewhere the wrong way, and you will hear about it, case in point, you hearing about it from me right now. So, 
I advise Slavo Zizek and anyone else who wants to talk about the October 7th attack or the manner in which Israel has been striking back, don't worry about accusations of anti-Semitism. There's no escape from such accusations, regardless of the nobility of one's intentions, nor the thoroughness of one's scrutiny of historical facts. And that is a Jewish opinion, one among many, I'm sure. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day! Bravo. That was very, very good. I really appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, thank you very much. I, I liked uh, Sebastian's uh, statement at the beginning of his uh, uh, Pass Inside the Present this week. And, uh, yeah, I thought that was really great. And I really enjoyed his completely unrelated history of money that he did on the show. That was awesome. It was, uh, the whole thing was great. And it was great. <laughs> that was the first mention of David Graeber, I believe. I know. Was it the second? I don't know. No, I think it was the first because he said, uh, yeah, he talked about uh, the book, uh, The History of Debt that he had done. And so, yes. so uh, yeah, a lot of David, David Graeber talking. And people should be checking out our interviews with David, the two interviews that we did at our website, thisishell.com, by searching on Graeber. And we are have been talking, I have been talking, uh, speaking with David Wengrow, and there's a very good possibility that we will be having him That's on the excellent. show for to discuss the dawn of everything at some time early next year. So you might have and to- People should be reading that book. Oh my God, they should be reading that is- over and over again. When I went to the lake this year with uh, family, my uh, one of my nieces, uh, w- um, one of my nieces, her husband was reading The Dawn of Everything. He had just taken it out of the library and he yeah. had, had to wait for a really long time to get a copy, but yeah, so there you go. I have a friend who has the hard copy. I have it on on the computer, which I find really great because you can click on a footnote, read the footnote, and click right back to where you left off reading. Unlike the book, where you have to flip pages, oh. you know, like a book, like one of those old fashioned books. Yeah, because I just have the I just have the book, and I've never read anything online because reading everything screws up my vision. You don't have to. I mean, well. But I love you the idea also, of the hyperlink to you know from a footnote. Yeah. That's really great, and I think hyperlink uh, that's a term from the '90s. If people don't know what that term is anymore, I think maybe Jorn Barger invented that. I think he may have. He, we know he invented uh, the term blog. Yep. And uh, yeah, Jorn was on our show. He actually got us in Wired magazine uh, way back in the day, and we have an image of that at uh, our website. So, Jeffy. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, and more important thank than that, thank you. Stay, yeah. stay beautiful. Oh, God, that's so hard right now. I know, but you're working on it. You look great. Your body's chiseled. <laughs> <laughs> All right, stay beautiful, my friend. You too. Thank you. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History, on October 29th, 1665, 358 years ago this week, decades of growing political tensions came to a head in southwest Africa when Portuguese armies clashed with forces of the independent kingdom of Congo in a river valley at Imbuila, an area near what is now the border between Angola and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Portuguese had recently retaken their colonial possessions in Luanda to the south in what is today Angola, and now they were intent on seizing the Congolese copper mines. So this was back in the day when 
Nations would invade and occupy other nations' lands, indiscriminately killing its inhabitants to take control of the country in order to then strip it of its resources and whatever wealth it had. Thankfully, colonialism is now in the dustbin of history. But back in 1665, at Imbuila, more than 20,000 Congolese fighters took the initiative, led by their king, Invita a Inkanga, also known as Antonio I, although personally, I prefer Invita a Inkanga far more than the Europeanized Antonio I. Along the Ulanga River, the Congolese fighters met a Portuguese army of roughly equal size, and though they fought hard and gained an early advantage, they were finally overwhelmed by the Portuguese archers and musketeers. In the heat of battle, some 5,000 Congolese soldiers were killed, including the king and both his sons, because unlike Europeans, their leaders and their families actually fought side by side in their nation's war, wars, risking their lives instead of being thousands of miles away at a desk safe from the wars they declared. Evidently, viewing the Congolese monarch as a worthy and brave adversary, the Portuguese cut off his head and buried it in one of their Catholic chapels with full military honors, a thoroughly disrespectful act that somehow the Portuguese saw as respectful. But despite the Portuguese battlefield victory, they would fail to consolidate their hold on the region. The death of the Congolese king and princes, and the lack of any clear successor, would then plunge the kingdom into a bloody power struggle and some 50 years of civil war. Hashtag Thanks, Portugal. Also in Rotten History, on October 31st, 1964, 59 years ago this week, 34-year-old NASA astronaut Ted Freeman was killed by a goose. Returning from a training session at McDonnell Aircraft in uh, St. Louis in preparation for what would have been his first space flight, Freeman was piloting his T-38, that's a trainer jet, toward a landing at Ellington Air Force Base in Houston when he encountered a flock of geese flying through patchy fog. One of the big birds was sucked into his jet engine, causing it to flame out. As his plane veered out of control, Freeman ejected from the cockpit, but his parachute did not open in time to save him, and he was killed. So it wasn't the goose that killed Freeman. It was the lack of a functional parachute. NASA was slow in informing his wife of his death, and she instead learned of it from a newspaper reporter who showed up at her front door. It's just yet another case of animals being blamed for something humans did. Finally, in Rotten History, on November 2nd, 1928, 95 years ago this week, in France, the highly promising 18-year-old Romani guitarist Django Reinhardt and the only other Django I know is Django Unchanged. You know, that's the only other one I know. Django Reinhardt, who was beginning to attract the attention of European jazz fans, was settling in for a night's sleep with his wife, who earned income by making and selling artificial flowers made from celluloid. The caravan they shared was filled with the highly flammable material, and when Reinhardt accidentally knocked over a candle, the caravan went up in flames. Though they survived the fire, Reinhardt suffered severe burns over much of his body, including part of his left hand. He essentially lost the use of two fingers and was told by doctors that he would never play guitar again. It would take Reinhardt most of a year to relearn to play the guitar, inventing an extremely unconventional technique that relied mainly on his index and middle fingers. Thus, he would overcome his disability 
and his stubbornness, dexterity, and innate sense of swing would enable him to become essentially the first European jazz musician to be accepted by American jazz artists as a peer and an equal. And as someone who is disabled myself, I can tell you it is exceedingly difficult to overcome stubbornness, a lack of dexterity, and an innate sense of swing. Now, that's rotten history, and this is how this is how office hours are happening this evening, Wednesday evening, as they happen every week. It's our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think. Happens every Wednesday, beginning around 5, 6 p.m. today, usually at 6. I might be over here a little bit earlier because I have to leave a little early as we're doing a show again tomorrow. It all happens at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. It's supposed to be a chilly night, but it's always a great night for drinking beer in the beer garden and possibly one of the last nights of 2023 that you can actually kind of tolerate the weather that's happening because it's just going to get worse from here outside of a little bit of a warm spell coming up. Dan, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? We will be having The Intercept's Nick Terse returning to This Is Hell to talk about his breaking story Secret Pentagon investigation found no one at fault in drone strike that killed Somali woman and her four-year-old son. I cannot tell you how much of an impact that reading that uh, investigation had on me. It was very, very difficult to get through that writing because of just how horrible it is, and how the United States does not do a damn thing to compensate civilians' families of those that they've killed. It's just, it's really rough, and it's a reminder of why this is hell. Vote for This Is Hell in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll at chicagoreader.com slash best. You can vote for us under the City Life category, where you can vote for This Is Hell as Best Podcast and me, Chuck Mertz as best radio DJ. That's chicagoreader.com slash best. Then go to City Life and vote for This Is Hell as best podcast and me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream, and podcast host Chuck Mertz as best radio DJ. While you're there, please show some love for Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, where we have This Is Hell office hours every week. While there are only two categories under City Life to vote for This Is Hell and me, best podcast and best radio show, respectively, there are a few places where you can vote for Carrie's Lounge. You can vote for Carrie's under food and drink for best beer garden. And if you've ever hung out in the beer garden with me during office hours, you know it is the best beer garden for many reasons. And under music and nightlife for best neighborhood bar, as well as best dive bar. And it is hands down the best dive bar in the city. That's chicagoreader.com slash best. Vote under the category City Life for This Is Hell as best podcast and for me, Chuck Mertz, as best radio DJ. And vote for Carrie's under food and drink for best beer garden and under the music and nightlife category for best neighborhood bar and best dive bar. Again, that's Carrie's Lounge. C-A-R-Y-S Lounge. Voting is only open until November 7th. You've got like six more days. That's about it. So vote early, vote often for This Is Hell, Chuck Mertz, and Carrie's Lounge at chicagoreader.com slash best. See? We told you so. This is hell.
My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.